I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Face to Face. This is a show about change and about what's next. It's a show that wants to ask questions, peel back the layers of our average everyday experience, and go beyond scratching the surface. We interview amazing people with incredible ideas and stories who have done wild, weird, and wonderful things. Remember that imagination shared create collaboration, and collaboration creates community, and community inspires social change. I'm David Peck, and this is Face to Face. next interview is with Professor Nicholas Greco. He's uh, an associate professor of communications and media at Providence University College, and he's written mostly about music. I mean, he's a cultural critic. He's, he's as in his own words, he's kind of a sociologist. What I found really interesting about Nicholas is I love, love his sense of humor uh, and his wit and his insight, but, you know, it's all about the message. It's all about the melody for, and the medium, I guess, for Nicholas. You know, as he says, quote, we don't just listen to music, close quote. So, I mean, I, I love that. He talks about television being a sacrament and about the, the, the differences and the connections between idealism and action. We talk a lot about U2, sadly. So if you're not a U2 fan, you're probably, well, you may not enjoy it, but you're still going to need to listen to the to the interview. Nicholas is, is a lot of fun. I think we're going to have a part two coming up uh, really uh, soon. He even talks about the greatest song ever written, which is a pretty crazy claim to make. But uh, I think you're going to really enjoy the interview with Nicholas, as I said. Terrific guy, Associate Professor of Communications and Media. He's written a book about David Bowie recently, which we also talk about. And don't forget, davidpecklive.com. Check out... Uh, uh, the website for more interviews coming up uh, uh, weekly, and we will uh, hopefully we'll see you soon. Well, welcome to Face to Face. We're joined by a, a special uh, digital guest once again, long distance. You know, we call this we call this Face to Face, but it's pretty rare that I'm actually face to face. Anyway, we're joined today by uh, Professor Nicholas Greco. He is the Associate Professor of Communications and Media at Providence University College. Uh, Nicholas, thanks for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me, David. This is um, this is a, a great uh, great thing. After a few weeks of sort of trying to catch each other, we finally found a time to speak. So I'm happy about that. We've finally made some time. It's, well, apparently you spend all your time on iTunes. So <laughs> yeah, I do. Uh, I, I do. That's true. I've been listening to lots of internet radio actually in the last little while. So that's so how does a guy how does a guy get a job like you, a high level PhD academic, writing about Morrissey? 
mm-hmm. and you two and yeah. David. Bo- in fact, you've published a new book uh, called David Bowie in Darkness. Let's get that out there right away for our listeners. So a new book that's getting quite a bit of critical acclaim, I understand. David Bowie in Darkness, uh, a study of... What is it? What's the subtitle? A study of outside in the late career. There you go. People ask me what outside is, and it's one of his lesser-known albums that came out in 1995. Uh, To much critical acclaim, uh, not as much fan acclaim, of course, because it's a a challenging uh, challenging text, if you will, but uh, a a really interesting album, and probably the, the, the album that made me want to study David Bowie. And I'm in a great position to do to do this sort of work. I mean, you you asked, you know, how does one get to uh, study Morrissey or or U2 or or David Bowie at, at the level that I'm at? And I'm lucky to be able to do that. I think there's that uh, great sort of spot in academia uh, called cultural studies and media studies, where we actually get to talk about these things that lots of people invest their time and uh, lots of their money and lots of, uh, lots of uh, their attention in. And so it's important stuff to study because people are, are spending a lot of their, themselves uh, into this music as well. So, so would, you, would you, I mean, you're obviously you're an academic, you're a professor, you're a teacher, you're a writer, but would you refer to yourself, I mean, are you a social critic? Are you a critic of pop culture? Are you a, a social scientist? I mean, where, where would you kind of land? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm kind of a social, I'm I'm kind of a sociologist, I suppose. Okay. I mean, certainly in training, I'm I'm a sociologist, but a sociologist more at the theoretical end of things. I I, I don't do much. Uh, there's a term in sociology, ethnography, where you go out and you you interview people and find out what they're thinking and so forth. I sort of went on the other end and, and mm. did sort of semiotics, which is the study of signs and trying to figure out what things mean. And so I approach popular culture with that lens, trying to figure out what is going on there and what it means. So oftentimes I'll take a look at something, say, like you 2 and, and look at it as a kind of problem, not a problem. Hang on, hang on. Yeah. Be careful there, Nicholas. I mean, yeah. we're talking about my favorite band, okay? Oh, I understand. I mean, they're <laughs> one of my favorites as well. Okay. Uh, I was gonna. I, that's why I put that qualifier. That's not right. The problem, David. Yeah, that's not right. Problem. Oh, um, I see. I mean, not a, not in the negative sense. Yes, yes. Rather, uh, uh, something to be decoded. Or oh, okay. That's, that's sort of what. Sort I of unpacked, looking at the yeah. nuances, the layers. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. The importance of you two. Yes. Oh, certainly. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, just think about their uh, last album that they put out, Songs of Innocence, yes. pushed, pushed down to, uh, to people's phones everywhere. Anyone who had an iTunes account would uh, suddenly uh, woke up on, uh, in that September morning or whenever it was, uh, and they found the, uh, the songs on their, on their uh, phones. I mean, many people complained about that. Uh, who is you 2 and why are they on my phone? Um, but uh, just think about the, the, the hugeness of that. Uh, that people actually had this album. And, and even after all of that controversy, I think uh, the album was, in fact, still being listened to by people in December. It, it was one of the top listened to albums on iTunes. Yeah, for all the criticism, it really yeah, was exactly. kind of a brilliant move, wasn't it, on their yeah, I think their it part. was. I mean, yeah. even though it was highly criticized, and there were certainly there were problems, I suppose, with the rollout. But, uh, but that doesn't mean we should uh, necessarily ignore something like U2. I mean, it, it is a it is a, an icon of the of the age that we live in now. So well, it's kind of interesting, isn't it? About just because they're on my iPhone, I should now ignore them. I mean, that's an interesting notion in a sense. Because I mean, if you were to go back and look at any academic, any religious leader, any important politician, most of these folks, bands, people, movements have huge issues with them that could be critiqued and and unpacked and criticized, and yet lots of value at the same time. So there's a real 
kind of paradox and contradiction there, isn't there? Oh, sure. Yeah. I think there was, I mean, there's a lot that's involved in the iTunes thing. Lots of people thought it was an invasion of privacy because they didn't choose to have this material on their phones. Many of them were not fans of U2. Most, mo- many of them, I suspect, didn't even know who U2 was, right. at least if you see the tweets that they Which is, the- frankly, an outrage to a fan like <laughs> me. Especially for those of us who are fans, right? <laughs> why right. not know who U2 is? That's right. In my classes, when I talk about U2, many people, many of my students come to me afterwards and say, you know, my parents would love what you said today. Oh, do you know like, what? Really? I, uh, I know. I have, you know, uh, Spencer and Victoria, my two kids, and Spencer and I went to see the tour. Uh, I brought him with me at 10, and of course, good. he kind of enjoyed some of it, and, you know, mm-hmm. but really, it's music dad listens to now, sadly, <laughs> isn't it? I mean, well, that's what that's what they say, and and I don't know. I mean, certainly my father never listened to you two, but I mean, you know, it it's a um, it, it's an interesting cultural artifact. That's the thing, and, and people just don't understand because when you look at any video of you two in particular, the sort of live concert video, there's a number of people that are participating in the live concert. You know, mm, any one mm, concert has mm. thousands and thousands of people involved, and they put on these massive touring shows and the number of people that they are reaching is is astronomical Mm. and and so you know whether we are fans of them or not i think we need to look at them and this is the same with bono many people call bono the sort of pompous kind of Mm -hmm. uh, figure that that is full of ego and so forth but the fact that he is so out there i think means that we have to take a look at him so so ellen mcgirt wrote a recent article in fortune magazine that maybe we can talk about briefly Uh, i want to hear more about your book on bowie and and just why anyone would, would want to write this kind of stuff in the first place. But <laughs> but Ellen McGirt uh, writes, uh, Irish rock icon Bono leads a widely, quote, acclaimed data-driven global organization that influences governments, rallies C-suites, raises hundreds of millions of dollars for people living in poverty. What's his secret? An ability to convince others that they are the true leaders of change, not him, close quote. A lot of people are just groaning right now as they're listening to this, I'm sure, right? Because he's got this messianic complex and what a massive ego. Uh, My wife Elizabeth is not a huge fan of his stage presence, Mm -hmm. but she loves him and what he does. Uh, And I I think I've always seen them sort of as part and parcel of, of, of who you two are, who Bono is, I suppose, an extension of the band themselves. But yeah. but a lot of people wouldn't be able to to go there, and and I guess maybe that's part of my question too, Nicholas, in the sense mm-hmm. that don't most people just listen to music? Like, holy smokes, why why do you unpack it? Why do you need to look at the you know it's 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 a good melody or it's not? You know, the, yeah, you know, we we don't just listen to music. That's the thing. Mm. Like we think we do. We think we just listen to music, and, and you know maybe that's it's becoming more problematic uh, lately because of the you know uh, rise of streaming services where people are listening to music, but they're not necessarily uh, you know finding that particular album and you know going out to the record store, let's say, and purchasing that and listening to it nonstop. Oftentimes, I think now with uh, especially with streaming services, there's more of a buffet quality. You're mm-hmm. just listening to whatever is cool that particular week. Um, but I don't think we ever really just listen to music. I think uh, when when we engage with any of these sorts of media, we are in fact engaging them with various layers of our mind. I mean, it's not only just listening. We are decoding what's going on there. We just don't think we are, but we are. I mean, I, I understand that there might be this idea of ubiquitous music, music that's just sort of, sort of on in the background. But in that case, we're not really listening to it either. Um, there's lots. There's lots. So, so can I just t- toss something in there? Sure. Maybe as you unpack that, are you concerned? So, as a as a sort of a, a 
you know, a kind of a sociologist, as you said, are you more interested in the, the melody or the message? Or is it, or are they both intertwined? Like, the, in other words, the lyrics, you know, a lot of people, well, well I don't really listen to the lyrics. No, you, know? you have to look at everything. You okay. have to look at everything. Um, the, uh, the melody or the message, uh, the melody contains a message as well. I mean, that's the famous sort of Marshall McLuhan's famous mm-hmm. quote that even those, some of my colleagues don't really understand. The, the medium is the message. Right. There, there is a message there in, in the very music that mm-hmm. we're listening mm-hmm. to. So even melody has a message in it. And I'm thinking back to my musicological days when I, I did a couple of music degrees before I did my uh, my doctorate so uh, I sort of have a little bit of that sense um, musical sense uh, if you will but yeah there there are messages there as well uh, it's not only through the lyrics that we we get to know things it's also through the music too um, so yeah that's all there it's all there and there's so much that's the thing is we, we think that even the most sort of vapid pop song has uh, you know it has nothing in it it's just uh, sort of drivel but there there is stuff there we make associations all the time when we're listening to mm-hmm. music, and, and that's important to sort do of you th- dig out. And do you, do you out. think, you know, I mean, are you, oh, man, let, let's go back to a song that I grew up with. Oh, isn't this bizarre? Okay, you're going to think I'm nuts, and I don't know. The Monks, were they a band back in the 80s? Uh, they could have been. The uh, monks. You were they, probably the only one listening. To I them. was the only one listening, and I'm going to actually search it right now. Drugs in my pocket, and I don't know what to do with them. Okay, okay, okay. everyone just quickly shut off this podcast, by the way. <laughs> um, so the band is called The Monks. Drugs, okay. drugs in my pocket. Okay. So from an album called Bad Habits, released in 1979, okay. I was in my early teens. Mm-hmm. I'm not a drug addict today, Nicholas. No. Right. So... Is there any, <laughs> you know, my parents would have been out, like, they would have hit the roof if they'd known yeah. that I, and, and in fact, did. I remember, I remember a song playing, I think it was Sting, playing on the, on MTV, on, believe it or not, on television. And, and, um, and my mother walked into the room and she started to sort of hammer me on the lyrics. Yeah. Oh, you know what that actually means, don't you? Yeah. Well, yeah, I do, mom, but anyway. So yeah. I guess my, I don't know what my question is, but I think is, you know, clearly music, message, um, there are implications that, like you say, they're, they're, these are cultural drivers, yeah. they inform us in mm-hmm. a certain way. Are you that concerned about that, I guess? Uh, well, no, I'm not. I mean, okay. I, I, you know, the, the monks didn't, didn't, make you, didn't make you take drugs, uh, nor did, um, you know, me listening to David Bowie make me uh, take cocaine. Uh, you know, I didn't start on a diet of uh, 2% milk, uh, red peppers, and cocaine. Because <laughs> really? We did that. I didn't. Yeah, I, I thought didn't that's know. how you ended up at Providence. <laughs> Don't start spreading rumors. Uh, uh, that's but, right. No, it's, it's, uh, music uh, does influence us. I'm not saying that music is not influential, because, of course, it is an important mm-hmm. Cultural, mm-hmm. cultural force. Um, but we are also, uh, all of us have free will. We are not robots simply consume material and then go and do it. There was a study years ago, not a study, but there was a, uh, a sort of a, a criticism years ago. There was a film, and I don't remember which film it was, but in the film, a bunch of the main characters decide to line themselves up on the yellow lines of a street. They sort of lie down on the street as cars are zipping past them, and, and there was a huge uproar about this because, you know, won't, won't young people decide to go and lie down mm-hmm. on the street because they see this thing in the movies? And, mm-hmm. and uh, of course, no one did that because that's stupid. 
people, you know, but, but now, people, now you're sounding like an academic again. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. And so, you know, I mean, Bono talks about, uh, box, talks about loving people. I mean, he's yeah. got a whole song yeah. that's, that's, that's talking about Yahweh. Yes. You know, he's yes. speaking to Yahweh. Well, you don't see droves of people, uh, at least explicitly, knowingly speaking to God just because Bono says so. I mean, we right. don't have this move right. towards social justice because Bono pushes for it. I mean, this is the other thing, right? We can talk about how, you know, listening to Queen makes you want to smoke marijuana, which used to be a, something I heard when I was young. Uh, you can talk about that, but you can't say that, you know, good, that music also does good things. But it does, of course. Well, there was this whole movement. I mean, the whole backward masking movement. And <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's just the absurdity yeah. of all that. I mean, yeah, and that's I, what I'm referring to. With yeah, the thing. Like, let's go out and burn our records. In fact, I know people who did that. You know, as a result yeah. of some of the messages and some of the stuff that was being communicated. I mean, I mean, and so often, what's interesting to me, some of the stuff that my my kids are starting to listen to already, uh, and I'm I'm kind of listening to them with it. Uh, video is so much a component now of sure. of the music as well, and so you've got a whole other, not only art form, but but a, 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 a another medium, another message being communicated, yeah. right? Uh, another articulation of it, I guess you could say. Yeah, I use the term mediation. It's a, yet another way for some, for the band or for the musicians to be mediated. We see them in another way. Um, we engage with them in another way, and and so that's, uh, you know, there was something in the, the Forbes article. It mentions that uh, Bono is number fourteen on Forbes magazine's world's greatest leaders list, which is crazy when you think about it, right? It a is rock, a rock star. Yeah. Yeah. I just thought that was that was uh, that was interesting. Tim Cook from Apple says that he's got idealism and action, both of those things combined, and an unusual mix of traits that generally people don't have. But yes. Bono seems to have both of those: idealism and action. And I suspect that the idealism part of it is, is probably, um, you know, his rock and roll roots are probably what what helps with that idealism. There's something really amazing to me about the band and and and, and just their uh, what I would almost call their the thread that runs throughout their band i mean having you know being a fan and having read lots about them and listened to their music for years following them since i don't know 1987 i suppose mm -hmm. maybe even before that saw them with joshua tree tour in toronto in the exhibition stadium which doesn't even exist anymore right. you know blown away people yeah. leaving the building singing together thousands sure. of people singing 40 as they walk out of the you know mm -hmm. you just this is a concert experience and unlike pretty much every other concert i've been to and and i'm no um um you know, a uh, groupie of any band really, but I guess I've been to a fair amount of concerts over the years. I don't think I've seen that kind of community anywhere else. Yeah. We joke amongst my colleagues about, about, uh, U2 being a great church experience, mm. uh, that going to a U2 show is like going to church, a very spiritual kind of experience. Certainly. Well, and great, and great sporting events can be the same too, right? Uh, yeah. 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 That wouldn't be unique necessarily. I mean, the, uh, the notion of transcendence in, in a concert experience, mm. that happens quite often. I remember being at a Radiohead show and in Ottawa, and that was for me this sort of spiritual experience, but I don't know if that was because of Radiohead or it was because I was with a, a, a woman that I really liked at the time. Right. Well, I actually, I think it had more to do with the haze of marijuana smoke, you know, <laughs> that was, you know, probably right at about eye level. That'd you know, be that's guess. quite possible as well. Um, you know, that, that, so, so I don't know what, what, what that was exactly. <laughs> certainly you two, I mean, we talk about you two and, and the moments that, that, that Bono, when he's on stage, he, he can break through 
something that maybe other bands don't. He seems to break through the terrestrial, if you will. He's somehow mm. able to to channel a, div, a divinity of some kind, you know. And for for those of us who understand the context of you too, we could say he's able to actually somehow, you know, reach Christ and make Christ touch through that uh, through that concert. The, the crowd that's there, they may not realize that they're meeting with God, but I think they actually are in a U2 concert. But do you think? Do you think? Able to do that. Yeah, that's really cool. Do you think there's something kind of religious i suppose maybe or um is that the right word i'm looking for ritualistic maybe about the notion of a rock concert in itself you know getting 20 30 40 i mean i went to see the i guess the biggest concert i've ever been to would have been about 50,000 people i suppose i mean that's that's, that's a crazy amount of people in one place that yeah. are there that are there for the same reason yeah, all of that I think points to the ritualistic notion of uh, of community and it taps into sort of long-standing traditions of of re- uh, of, of um, you know meeting together to to try to access the spiritual. Um, certainly, that that all works toward that. I just I just think that you can't ignore when Bono is at, you know on stage and he's quoting one of the psalms at the start of, of uh, where the streets have no name, you, you can't just ignore that. Hmm. Uh, it is, in fact, a moment of the divine. You've got, you've got um, you know, them breaking out into uh, the refrain of hallelujah at the mm-hmm. end of, mm-hmm. um, you know, walk on or whatever. Mm-hmm. That, mm-hmm. Th- th- these are moments where that sort of facade, uh, facade between earth and heaven is broken, even for a mm. moment. And I, I'd like to think, I guess as a theorist, that even if people don't know that it's happening, that it's happening anyway. And I guess, you know, before I was joking with you a little bit about, you know, when, when Bono was singing Yahweh, it's not like a million people have come to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus or something. It's not <laughs> right. like a bunch of right. people are praying because right. Bono says so. But in many ways, maybe they are, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the other way mm-hmm. of looking at it, sort of mm-hmm. a theoretical way of looking at it. Maybe when they are singing along to Bono, they are, in fact, um, you know, uh, making change uh, because they're calling out to God. So, so would we be different people if we weren't listening to this kind of music? I mean, on some level, that's a pretty silly question. Uh, but on another level, I, uh, I, I'm kind of interested to hear what you have to say. You know, I, I always say to people when we talk about things like this, this sort of idea, I often say, you know, it is, it, it doesn't seem, it doesn't seem that it could be, but on a theoretical level, yes. And so I would say, you know, uh, yeah, we, we maybe we would not be the same. We would not have the same kind of uh, experience. We would not have the same kind of experience if we didn't listen to this music. I talk about television as a sacrament in one mm. of my papers, and people are like, they think about that and they say that's ridiculous. You know, the idea that watching television could actually be grace giving to you. Mm. It's a we- really weird idea, and I have this whole sort of framework around that to try to explain what I'm thinking. But I, I suspect that listening to some music is sacramental, and maybe in these kinds of examples, Bono singing Yahweh, this is sacramental. This is us touching the divine, and the divine perhaps coming and uh, imparting grace to us, even through this particular action. I, I think it happens, and maybe maybe we're limiting it so much to you know that particular church tradition or that particular time when we're in church, and we think that the spiritual actually comes down and touches us or changes us. Maybe this happens more often than we think it does. I'm reading a book right now called Why Did They Kill? It's uh, by Alex uh, Hinton. Alexander Hinton. Um, it's about genocide in Cambodia. As my mm. listeners know, it's a place that I travel to often and work uh, have been working at for uh, on for years and different variety of different levels. Um, he talks just recently, fairly uh, significantly, about some of the songs that the Khmer Rouge used. 
mm. uh, some of the lyrics, the way that this hyper-communistic ideology was was spread, you know, through yeah. the, and it was through the airwaves as well. They right. had a pretty unsophisticated radio system. Um, I've actually there's the the one of the radio towers still stands up in up in a province a place called Anlong Vang, right on the Thai border where Paul Pot uh, died and was buried, and 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 the importance of it, right? And the impact and how that would be very different today, I think, with social media and access and immediate sort of global access to the world around uh, uh, us, I yeah. would think. The messages would be communicated differently. Mm -hmm. But I just think about this power and you see some of these images. I think of, yeah. I think of some of the, the not Hitler youth. You yeah, know, right. you know, right. to go from you two to propaganda might, might be a bit of a stretch, but in some ways not so much. No, I mean they've used that term themselves, sort of in a, I think, in a more more uh, tongue-in-cheek kind of way. Uh, with their fan fan magazine was called Propaganda. I think that came out during That's the actually, era. Okay, so now you're just showing yourself as not only an academic but a nerd as well. <laughs> I love it. You know yeah. that you know their fan uh, magazine. That's awesome. Yeah, I was never a subscriber to it, but I. Hey, I, I was Nicholas. Oh, very good. I have some copies. I'd be happy to send your way. So. Yeah, that'd be yeah. great. Yeah. No, I think I think well, is it wasn't that Zoo TV? I mean. Yeah, I mean, I in in a way, I don't think they really totally take themselves seriously. Well, I think, uh, yeah, I mean, I think they were they were showing that they they were. I think rather than them not taking themselves seriously, I mean, certainly they're able to joke about themselves, but I think more so they wanted to show that they weren't just a band. Right. There was something much bigger than right. that. Right. And I think I think you know you were you were saying earlier that you were suggesting that. Um, Bono is in many ways what U2 is. I don't know if that's exactly what you're saying, but I, I, it doesn't really matter what you were saying. What matters <laughs> is what I'm saying. And so that's I right. think that actually the band is an expansion of, of, of Bono in, in many ways. I mean, was, that a, was that a quote from Bono, by the way? Because that <laughs> sounds like something he would say. It doesn't matter what you're saying. It only matters what I'm about to say. Listen, yeah. as long as the CEO of Coca-Cola and the CEO of Apple listen to him, that's probably yeah. Okay. It's not. It's not too bad, eh? Yeah. Yeah, I think I think the band is in many ways an ex, uh, an expansion, if you will, of Bono's own mm. experience. Mm -hmm. He grew up with with difference, religious difference, with um, you know his parents, one being Protestant and the other being Catholic, and this kind of um, very interesting model for him of what mm -hmm. uh, lived Christianity is supposed to be like. So that's a really, okay, so now all of a sudden our podcast is about, entirely about you too, which believe me, I'm okay with, but, but, but and maybe <laughs> well, we're going to have. easily be shifted to any topic that yeah. you talk, talk well, to me about. Well, maybe we're going to have to do a part two down the road, but just before we go back to Bowie and your book and so on, sure. and, and maybe just also, I mean, I, you know, I've, got, I've run through your CV, I mean, you're writing about Feist and Morrissey and, and it's just, it's, I mean, rock music in particular it seems to me i mean you're very very specific with some of some of the i'd like to you know i'd like to hear more about some of your observations with respect to some of those things but there's an interest i mean i think part of the reason why this band has been able to stay together for so many years is uh, there's got to be something going on there from a relational perspective an ego perspective right. does the band and i'm sure they're not thrilled to think that maybe they are in fact an extension of 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 Bono's ideology, maybe that's a massive oversimplification. I don't know, but but they do still seem to be one, D right? You right. know what I mean? Like, yeah, I do. It, I it, do. I it, mean, and as corny as that sounds, and even the title of one of their songs and yeah. all of that, there's 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 a glue there that you don't that that m most other rock bands in the world just don't seem to have. Yeah, there's a glue there, and and you're, I mean, it, it does sound simplistic and perhaps. A, 
very corny, this idea that they are one or whatever, but they're one in many in, in their differences, right? Right, so you've got, right. You know, Bono, who's got a, um, a Protestant uh, and Roman Catholic parents, uh, whichever one it is, I keep forgetting who is who, but you know what I mean. Yes, yes. And you've got uh, other members of the band that perhaps don't have such an explicit kind of Christianity, and Adam Clayton has often been touted as the one who's not a Christian or whatever, whereas the other ones somehow are. But, but the, the thing is they are all very different, I think. Yes. Uh, they are an extension of Bono's life in that they are different elements that are brought together, and somehow in their in their conflict, if you will, they stay as one. Yes. Uh, and in many ways, when we look at at you two, it it teaches us how to live together in some ways, and I think that's kind of the sacramental nature too, maybe mm. of listening to you two, mm-hmm. is that it gives us a pattern, it gives us something that will maybe improve our lives by. Uh, emulating what they're doing, and and I, I I shouldn't sort of use the word emulation so flippantly. I'm not saying we should act the way they do, but they show us something. They show us a particular ideal, perhaps, of how to stay together. Well, I mean, we could we could do a whole podcast on the whole notion of idealism and activism. I mean, for a guy who's all about social change, mm-hmm. about the splash and ripple effect, about the domino yeah. theory, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, I want to make the world a better place, and, and how do you bring those two things together? Great. It's yeah. perfect. You can, you can talk a good game. You can reach beyond your grasp uh, in a conversation, but are you actually Actually, when it when when the rubber needs to meet the road, are you gonna are you gonna put boots on the ground? Are you gonna mm. actually act? Are you gonna make a difference? Right? And, See, but and this is I mean this is the thing with music uh, in general, and, and I'm talking sort of about popular music mm-hmm. and maybe even popular culture. Right? It it's not so much what it tells us in terms of the lyrics or the content or whatever. It's what it shows us in all that it that it uh, all that it represents. I mean, mm. oftentimes it can show us bad things. You know. Uh, we shouldn't treat each other the way that um, uh, Donald Trump treats people on The Apprentice, for instance. Mm-hmm. You know, if mm-hmm. we're watching a reality TV show, that's not how we should necessarily treat each other. Um, it, that doesn't necessarily have much to do about what people are saying. I mean, it's right. important to look at discourse, too, and what people are saying. But I think that's oftentimes what we, we don't think about. We, we sort of want to look at the content and take a look at how many times a, a swear word is being said right. in a movie or whatever. I love those kind of reviews. The F yeah, word was used 12 times. times. Yeah, right. Uh, we don't go sort of deeper into it to try to figure out what exactly is going on there and what it's showing us. And in fact, even those movies that might have swear words in them might have uh, something very important. What, 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 Nicholas, what do you say to people who just, well, you know what, I just listen to the music, it's in the background. Um, yeah. You know, people often say, you know, I'm a, I'm a bit of a cinephile, I love film, and, and I've got quite a few, for those of you out there who want to listen to quite a few interviews with filmmakers over the past year and a half, I don't believe we go to movies just to be entertained. I mean, I, 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 even though we might go into a movie saying, oh, I just want to be entertained, it's James Bond, it's, it's yeah. uh, the, the latest cartoon with my kids, we are constantly being informed. I mean, there's a story yeah. there that we are taking in whether we want to or not. So yeah. is it the power of the cumulative effect that's even maybe you know, playing in the background, if you will? I think it's simply how we engage with this media. I think, that's, I think we think we... We sometimes lie to ourselves and say, I'm only going to be entertained. Or I'm going to go, I'm gonna, you know, I've got nothing to do tonight. I'm going to flop on the couch and just vegetate as I'm watching television. 
we, we lie to ourselves because that's not actually how it works. I mean, in communications theory, we talk about encoding and decoding. There's encoding that goes on by the sender, and there's decoding that happens with the receiver. The only time when we're not actually decoding is when we're asleep, you know, mm. when we're actually mm. not engaged at all. But if we're watching stuff, we're listening to stuff, if we're hearing it, then we are somehow decoding it. We're engaged with it. You know, don't think that you're not. That's, that's what I often tell my students. Don't think that you're just sitting there and consuming. You're not. You're actually... Uh, you know, you're translating what you're getting into something that's meaningful for you. And so in many ways, that means we have to be, we have to be vigilant or whatever, and sort of place a, a kind of importance on what we are uh, taking in because we are engaging with it. On the other hand, I mean, we're not just robots. And that's the thing I said earlier. We're not just um, sort of, we don't do whatever the media tells us. We're smarter than that, I think. Um, isn't yeah, there a isn't there a sense you know isn't you know I mean you know quoting from the Fortune article about Bono thinking about you know other artists over the years who have had things to say actors you know they get up in front of the camera you know at the Oscars and they'll they'll make a comment I mean on one hand I am thrilled when people use their celebrity to 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 affect change to get a message out on the street but there's another part of me that just Maybe, maybe it's not me so much, the cynic, I guess, in me that says, I don't, why should I give a rat's ass what you think? Mm-hmm. You're, you're, you're a bazillionaire mm-hmm. uh, off of uh, yeah. a bunch of music that you wrote, or you, you, you acted well in a particular movie, like, big deal. Like, I, I think there's a, do you know what I mean? Like, there's a, there's a bit of a paradox there, <laughs> for sure. Uh, maybe it's not a paradox, but there's, there's, there's an incongruency, it seems to me. Yeah, yeah certainly there's a problem. That's, but I would just say that, that it is not as simple as we make it out to be. Mm. It's, it's much more complex. I mean, Bono is a, is a millionaire. You know, uh, U2 is a huge corporation that makes millions and millions of dollars. And sure, there's, you know, there are tax havens and places that they put their money that makes them make more money. You know, it, it, that's, not, uh, that's one part of it. But the other part of it is Bono being on stage. You know, in 2007, he got the uh, NAACP... Um, it was a, um, what was it? It was some sort of award from uh, the NAACP uh, in the States uh, for his activism. And he talked about uh, AIDS in Africa. He had this whole spiel thanking all the various members of NAACP, Julian Bond and others that were there. And he sounds kind of foolish, uh, sort of, you know, talking about his his upbringing as an Irish, almost pink person, he he mentions. (laughs) Uh, And then he, uh, but but at one point in the seven-minute speech, he sort of switches, and he suddenly goes into a tirade about what it means to be a follower of Christ and what that means wow. regarding our responsibility to people in the world. Wow. And the crowd, of course, responds to this, particularly because of their context and, and, uh, and so forth. But they respond to this so powerfully, and it's as if there's a switch being, uh, being uh, um, <laughs> switched. Uh, right. And it, right. it's just it's a great moment, and it goes to show, yeah, it doesn't, if I, I might not care, but it doesn't mean that he can't do what he's doing. Yeah, right. Right. And it so, doesn't mean that well, it won't affect me either. Well, and aren't we talking to some degree about 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 generosity and grace and the ability to handle such the madness that is celebrity? Sure. Right? It must be utterly insane to live in that world and to be hounded for photographs and autographs and you can't go anywhere. I mean, I, w- I would think there must be some, I would hope there's some sort of obligation <laughs> that <laughs> must be felt at some level to say, Wow, I hope I'm using this wisely. 
Well, you know, we don't know what it's like to be a celebrity. We really don't. I mean, you might, David, but I mean, <laughs> so we don't. We don't know what it's like. And there was this old joke that you know. I used to work at a, 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 a comedy and magic club, a nightclub in Toronto, a show that ran for seven, uh, nine years called A Little Night Magic, and there was an MC, Glenn Ottaway, and he used to talk about, "Hey, uh, would anybody like an autograph or something like that?" And the the joke was, "I, you know, I signed a hundred photos before I got here tonight. You know, <laughs> like, you know, I've got I've got them there if you want them." Exactly. Um, yeah, uh, you know we we don't know what it's like to be a celebrity, and we we I think that's just part of the complexities of it. Yeah, it's not as yeah. simple as we think. Uh, celebrity is not just a bunch of people sitting around and and uh, you know on on uh, beds of money or whatever. It's yes, not, it's not yeah. like that. Uh, and and yeah, in in some ways we hope that a celebrity, if they do have the if they do have the uh, the opportunity to affect change, we would hope that they would do that, and hopefully for the better, right? And I think that's one thing about Bono. I mean, we can say that he's an idiot, we could say that he's a hypocrite, but I don't think we can deny that he's helped to change things for the oh, better, at yeah. least for a certain group of of pop of people in the in the world. And so, uh, yeah, we have to give him credit for at least that. So, do you actually enjoy listening to music? <laughs> I do. Or do you like do you do you like sit there with your you know your notepad out and you're listening yeah. to a song? Not really. No. Not really. But I, you know, I remember when I listened to this David Bowie album from 1995. I I was very I was enthralled by what I was hearing. Mm-hmm. It didn't mean it, it really wasn't that I had a notebook there and I was feverishly writing things down and then looking at you know obscure French theorists try to figure out what was going on that wasn't the case at all but uh certainly it's the music that i enjoy that i then enjoy writing about uh the magic does not leave for me when i try to when i you know move that curtain away to see what's going on behind the magic for me is not gone it's it's reinforced so yeah i do enjoy listening to music so it's it's more about the implications for you it seems to me uh than than hmm then maybe the actual, actually the music itself or the, the, the lyric itself? Or can you, the can you... The potential of what that lyric and that music does. I was going to say, can you separate the two? I, you probably you, can't. You can't, really. I mean, you can look at what's going on in the lyrics and you could look at what's going on in the music, but you have to take both of those things together at some level and sort of figure what's going on in the music as a whole. And I'd also throw into that, you know, album t- album covers and sure. videos and all of that. You need to take a look at the whole thing. Well, it's, you know, I skateboarded a, a, as a kid and and uh, back, whoa, geez, 35 years ago, and I've got several broken bones and a couple concussions to prove it. And an old That's picture. That's why I never skateboarded. Well, and, and an old picture in the in the Etobicoke Guardian. I mean, I grew, <laughs> I grew up listening to just because I was in the, in, in, in that environment with other skateboarders, you know, Sex Pistols, Dead Kennedys, um, you know, some pretty heavy-duty punk, uh, that I wouldn't say, I mean, to say that it didn't shape me, I think would be kind of foolish, but I think, I think it was a part of the story that I was a part of that, that, that allowed me to say, hang on, I'm not exactly thrilled with the way things are. Sure. And and I want to question, and it went on. I went on to study philosophy, and I went on, right. you know. And so you you, you kind of wonder, you know, you look back, you understand, um, and and you start to see some of those connections. And you know, music is such a huge part of most people's lives. Yeah, and I, I when I talk to students, I often say that, you know, what music do you like? What 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 movies do you like? What what's the stuff that really gets you excited? And sometimes they come back with a really sort of a blasé kind of answer. They'll be like, well, I don't really listen much music. Uh, I, I like anything, really, and right. movies are not right. my thing, and and that sort of stuff. But I, I always have to probe a little deeper, because I'm sure there is stuff that they will mm-hmm. go back to mm-hmm. and listen to. 
if if they are anything like I was when I was much younger, you know, they will have they will gravitate to particular things, and I always want to know what what why they do that, what makes them want to listen to that stuff or engage with that material. That's the fascinating thing for me. Where is it? You know, where's the site of their engagement? What is the, the desire that they have? How does that come about? Is it Nicholas? Is this more of a Western kind of a thing? I mean, could we go? Could we go into uh, Uagadugu and Burkina Faso and find, uh, you know, young people listening to to the latest music? I mean, I mean, obviously you can physically yeah, if, if you've got could, a device. But, but yeah, are they? Is the question. Yeah, certainly this is a this is a Western thing. I think the the whole uh, the whole discipline of media studies is a Western uh, idea. Cultural studies. There's a there's a discipline called cultural studies, and oftentimes people come to me and say, "Well, is cultural studies the study of cultures?" And they say, "Well, kind of, but it's actually the study of our own culture. Mm. I mean, it is Western culture mm. that we're mm. focusing on because we've built uh, the whole idea of media and popular culture. These are the ways that we've talked about them. Uh, you know." creating commodities that people will listen to and, and consume and so forth. This is all a very Western idea. So we might be able to find it in other areas of the world, but only because of Western imperialism, probably. Because they, <laughs> nice. You know, they, they've yeah. done, I mean, they've, they've created cultural industries themselves sure. as well, I suspect, but that's only because we did so. So, so just before, we, we're going to have to wrap up in a few minutes, sadly, but just before we come to an end, tell me what the greatest song ever written is. Wow, that's, that's... It's a ridiculous a, question. That's a difficult question. The greatest song ever written. Oh, that's hard. Boy, David, <laughs> you, didn't, you didn't give me any warning. I didn't, I didn't oh, because it's abs- an absurd question. I mean, I no, would... No, here's... Yeah, here's go. A, here's a, I'll, try to, I'll try to do it, okay? Okay, I'll, yeah, I'll, please. There's a... Uh, and it's, it's a U2 song. <laughs> what we talked about earlier. Nice. Um, but it's... Um, I've got two here, okay. but I'll, I'll, I'll give you both of them if I do so quickly. Uh, on uh, The Unforgettable Fire, uh, there's a song, um, the name is ex- escaping me right now. It's on the second side of Unforgettable Fire. Um, but what it is, is it's, it's Bono uh, basically singing over uh, a sort of homecoming, which is the first track mm-hmm. uh, that's been kind of slowed down and messed up. And he's singing over it, and he's singing over it in such a way that really suggests that he didn't prepare I don't know if you know what I'm talking about. Interesting, yeah, kind of almost like a free verse. That's right, exactly. So that's one example of the best song ever. Interesting, okay. The reason why is because it moves you in ways that you would not expect it to move you. You are carried along by the music in ways that you probably Mm. weren't Mm. expecting to. Next time you listen to Unforgettable Fire, this is, I've cursed you now. You have, because basically as soon as I hang up with you, I'm going to listen to that uh, piece again. I thought you were going to say bad. That's where I thought you were going. no. But, you know, you can believe that. Here's the second, here's the second best <laughs> okay, song good. ever in the world. Yes. Uh, it's, again, on the, uh, it's U2 again, but it's on, it's, it's a live uh, rendition of, I believe it's Yahweh, and I could be wrong, on um, the U2 18 album. Okay. There was a DVD that came with that that was live good. in Milan, and I may be wrong, but uh, the reason why it's so great, Yahweh live, is because... Uh, uh, because the bass player is playing the guitar. Interesting, okay. And you're going to say that sounds ridiculous, right. But it changes things. This is the thing, it just changes things. It, it's a little thing that switches, and you're like, why would Adam Clayton be playing the guitar in this song? 
um, but he is. And suddenly the song gets a new meaning because right. normally Adam Clayton is in the back. Yes. Now he's yes. in the front. Now he's in the and front. And that's very important for those of us who you look could, at You couldn't have just picked like a Rolling Stone, eh? <laughs> My colleague Michael Gilmore would pick Okay. Up. Okay. Fair enough. Um, so tell me about the book. Uh, we'll have to wrap. I'll, I'll certainly direct people towards that on the site and in the bio. But tell me a little bit about the book, about Bowie, and, and why you're yeah. excited about it. You know, David Bowie is, uh, is a legend. Certainly now, after his death, he's become much more than he was in his life, I think. Uh, and uh, his later career is a part of his career that people don't look at. If you took a look at all the um, various tributes that happened in the last little while since his death in January, most of the tributes focused on uh, his music prior to 1983, nothing after 1983. And so that area is a uh, sort of black hole. But I think it's probably it's a black hole for a reason, because Bowie made it such and uh it, it's uh it was david bowie in shadows and darkness as i suggest in the title uh it was a it was a way for him to negotiate his worldwide celebrity the fact mm. that he was a massive celebrity uh but he also wanted to be apart from his fans and that's a fascinating tension to actually need the spotlight to be a celebrity but also to shun that same group of people at the same time and so uh, that was what fascinated me. Outside from 1985, uh, 1995 becomes a kind of central piece uh, to that whole uh, that whole era. So I'm just sad that Bowie uh, doesn't get the credit he mm. deserves in terms of his later career. And Black Star, by the way, which was his last album that came out in January, it, it was a fine album when it came out. But the you know the two days that was there uh, before we found out he died. Uh, you know, it was released on Friday, and I believe he died on the Saturday or the Sunday. But um, those two days, it was just an okay album. Once he died, though, that album became right. something much different. Uh, it becomes a legendary album. So. I think the main question of the interview is, Nicholas, how do I get a free copy of this book? <laughs> uh, uh, you know what? If you send... Uh, a Thirty dollars. They'll send you a free copy. It's remarkable how that works. Isn't it great? It's fabulous. Yeah. Uh, professor Nicholas Greco. He's the associate professor of communications and media at uh, Providence. At what's Providence University College? That's right. Uh, and uh, his most recent book, David Bowie and Darkness, published by McFarland and Company, 2015. We're going to have to do a part two and ignore everyone else except Bono and the Edge. Very Adam good. and Larry. I think that could be the title of the interview. What do you What do you think about that? It sounds fine. Let's do it. Let's do it. Thanks a lot for your time today. Of course. Acast powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.